Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. We've got Alan on the line. Hello, Alan. Yes, hello, Lou. Hello, you're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? Hello, Chris. Hi, Alan. It's a bit of a strange one. It's only come to me recently after watching various sort of uh, space programmes. And, and that is gyroscopes. We've got gyroscopes on Earth, obviously. And uh, they do all sorts of things like keep cameras steady on helicopters and the like. But I always felt that they needed gravity to be able to operate against now, if we went into outer space or uh, well, onto the moon or somewhere where the gravity was less or no gravity at all, would they still perform the same way? And what enables them to do that? Well, hello, Alan. Uh, the answer is yes, gyroscopes would work very well in space. And in fact, that's how some satellites use, use them to orientate themselves and even to move themselves. The reason a a gyroscope works and it doesn't need gravity is that it's usually a spinning mass, a wheel or something. And if you imagine, if I take a circular object and spin it very fast, if I move it one way, what I'm doing is I'm trying to move, say, the top of the wheel. If you imagine a snapshot with the wheel paused, I'm trying to move the top of the wheel, say, away from myself. Mm -hmm. But a fraction of a second later, the thing that I gave some momentum away from myself is now at the bottom of the wheel, And it's trying to move the opposite direction because the wheel is, of course, when you tip the top of the wheel away from yourself, the bottom comes towards you. So it's opposing itself. And this means that it resists or opposes any kind of movement away from the steady state in which it was already spinning. And this is why they're so useful, because they can be used to stabilise a structure and hold it in one orientation. And they don't need gravity to do that. Do they form their own gravity at all when they're doing that? No. The only thing, as far as we know, that will make gravity is mass. So massive objects make gravity, and gravity is viewed as a sort of distortion in the fabric of space. Einstein viewed the fabric of space as this sort of trampoline, sort of stretchy substance, which if you drop something very heavy onto it, like a planet or a star, it distorts that, that trampoline surface and puts a dip into it, a well, and... That means that things coming past will be attracted because they'll fall into the well. So that's sort of the best analogy we can come up with for gravity. It certainly is impossible to make artificially. What's the biggest gyroscope that there is? Are they massive things or can you get the same reaction from a small one? Well, if you make something very, very small but go very, very fast, you can have a gyroscopic effect. The more uh, mass that you have, then the better it is because, of course, it will have more momentum and this means that it will spin truer for longer but also if it's heavier, then it will be harder to try and deform it and deflect it anyway. Um, But pretty much anything at at any size will have a gyroscopic effect. Have we got a large one at all in the world for any reason? 
Almost certainly, Alan, but I'm not aware of where it is or what it is. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. Thanks very much. Alan, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Next, Dr Chris, let's um, answer a question, please, for Giles. He says, how do you get a ship into a bottle? (laughs) There's two ways. One way is that you make your ship in such a way that you can put the sails up once it's already in the bottle. So what people do is to assemble their ship, slide it in through the neck, and then they leave the threads that are going to be the rigging trailing, and then they pull on the threads from the neck of the bottle, which brings the masts upright. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is that you have manipulators so you can assemble the big bits using long sort of tongs that you thread in through the glass Uh, neck. I have heard some people suggest that you can also have a bottle where you can seal the glass up once you've put the ship in there. But uh, interesting question. Anyway, I pondered that when I was little myself. It always had me intrigued for a very long time. (laughs) You've got to be clever to make the ship in the first place anyway, to the right dimension. In my case, it would be harder to make the ship than actually to get it in the bottle. Yes, me too. Mike in Colchester says, two questions for Dr Chris. Firstly, if uh, he got caught in a rainstorm, would he get wetter by walking or running through the rainstorm? This was the subject of a Mythbusters episode. Initially they said no, and then they changed their mind and said, yes, it's better to run in the rain, you will get less wet. The theory or reasoning goes that if rain is falling at a certain rate, the longer you spend under the rain, the wetter you're going to get. So if you get to your destination quicker by running, therefore you'll spend less time under the rain, and therefore, by definition, you'll have been exposed to less falling water, so you'll get less wet. And that's, I think, probably the the best way of thinking about it. It depends to a certain extent what the wind is doing. If the water's coming from directly above, then fair enough, it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Um, If the rain is blowing the water straight into you, that could make a difference. You also have to account for whether you splash in the puddles when you're running or fall over as well, which will obviously have a wettening effect. Excellent. And also, Mike asks, how do we get white chocolate? I like white chocolate. Well, unfortunately, white chocolate's something of a misnomer because there's not really any chocolate in white chocolate. It's actually all fat. It's cocoa butter rather than actually cocoa solids. So that lovely white chocolate is principally just fat, cocoa butter, which tastes a bit chocolatey, and sugar. So it's really bad for you and has no health benefits whatsoever. Whereas the really dark, high cocoa mass, 70-80%, really nice black chocolate, that's the best for you because chocolate contains a number of antioxidant chemicals, including a, a bunch of chemicals called the procyanidins. And procyanidin has been proven by a researcher called Roger Corder and others. And he did some research looking at how these affect your blood vessels and showed that these kind of chemicals will lower blood pressure and they are therefore beneficial in preventing things like heart disease and stroke. And you need to eat about one square, not a square as in a square metre, one small square of dark high cocoa mass chocolate a day to get a beneficial effect. Mm, I love that too. <laughs> this time let's go to the email. If you'd like to email a question, it's sue.marchant at bbc.co.uk. This is from Gerald. He says, everything is going digital. The nature of digital and error correction gives clearer signals than analogue. Also saving in bandwidth in TV and radio transmissions. You can pack many times the number of voice calls down the copper wire is sent digitally. He wonders if there could be a large saving in energy in converting everyone over to digital internet-type phone lines, even for those who have no interest in computing or the internet. New phones for everyone and perhaps a new ethernet-type socket in the wall. Um, But would you not need an ASDL modem or line filters? I think the saving would fund the giving away of basic phone very quickly. What do you reckon, Chris? 
Uh, well, this is pretty much happening. If you look at, say, our university, the University of Cambridge, most of the phone system across the entire university is now what's called a VoIP, which is voice over internet protocol. You have a very special phone which behaves like a mini computer and it plugs into an internet socket in the same way as a computer would. And when you have a conversation, what it's doing is it's taking your conversation, it turns that conversation into digital signals which are transmitted over the internet to another internet-enabled VoIP phone, the one you're calling via the exchange, and this then registers the call, gets the message, decodes it and turns it back into a conversation that your ears can understand. So it's already happening and I think probably the future of uh, digital communication and information dissemination is precisely what Gerald's saying. Uh, very fast fibre optic connections, which are already being plumbed in actually in some people's houses, if they're very lucky they'll get very, very fast internet connection. But basically the idea is you have a fibre optic, this will send all kinds of things, uh, very high speeds, so all your television, all your telephone, all your communications and other computer connections and things would all go through this same fibre optic and all digital. And that means that you won't have to pay loads of different bills for loads of different services because you'll probably have just one provider who is the person giving you your fibre optic and you will then rent things or, or buy things from them. Uh, so they'll provide you with a telephone service, they'll provide you with some kind of internet service, they'll provide you with television and you can sign up to what channels you do want to watch rather than having to sign up to everything and getting a lot of old rubbish and one thing you do occasionally want to watch. So I think that's the way it's all going and I don't think it'll be very long. I mean the government announced, obviously in the UK, but this is different in the rest of the world, but the government of the UK have announced this telephone tax, haven't they, uh, in the last few weeks where there'll be a surcharge applied to all fixed line phones and every year this will come to a number of pounds I can't remember I think it was seven quid or something and the result will be that add all that together and they've that will provide a pot of money that can be spent on plumbing in fast internet connections across the whole country so that's the sort of first step um, towards getting us towards digital Britain which is the government's kind of plan for the future because love it or loathe it the internet is here to stay and it is an amazing repository of information and it's a wonderful learning tool if you use it the right way so trying to get everyone connected to it I think is a very important step regardless of, of whatever political leaning you are and uh, therefore we should try and promote it because it, it can actually in the long run save us all a lot of money because you can instead of having to spend money phoning people up you can send them emails for example which are free. And incidentally, if anybody wants to see a picture of Dr. Chris, he is in my uh, studio guest's album, which is on Sue Marchant's Big Night In page on Facebook. Well, I'd better have a look at this, actually. You look gorgeous. Check the quality mm. control and all that. Oh, no, you look gorgeous, darling. Um, Mike in Colchester. Well, where do just... I go to that? Where, where's that? Um, What's Sue the Mar <clears throat> Sue Marchant's Big Night In on Facebook. If you just Google Sue Marchant's Big Night In on Facebook. Okay, I'll check it then out. And you will find, find it there in, <laughs> in my albums. You look lovely. And uh, along with uh, sort of the other members of the team, team as well who work on the show. Now then, Mike has just said that he's heard you answering a question on gravity and wondered, does the sun, moon and earth being in line affect the gravity in general? Well, it does, yeah. And the best way to see that is to go to the seaside. And if you look at what the ocean does, twice a day, there are tides, two high tides, two low tides. So there, there are two tides a day. And the reason why those tides aren't always the same height is for precisely the reason that Mike is asking. If you wait every couple of weeks, uh, you get spring tides and neap tides. So two weeks of springs, two weeks of neaps. Spring tides are very high tides, neap tides much lower tides. And what's actually happening when you're seeing those differences in tidal heights is it depends on whether the sun and the moon and the earth are in a line or if the sun 
and the Earth and the Moon are not lined up together. So in other words, if the Moon is at 90 degrees to the Sun-Earth axis. And that's because the Moon exerts a gravitational effect on the Earth and pulls water towards it. And you get a bulge of water on the side of the Earth facing the Moon. Plus you get another bulge on the other side of the Earth opposite the Moon because that's the furthest point on Earth from the Moon and the water there is attracted a bit less. So you get two bulges. That's why you get two tides a day. But the Sun also pulls the water towards it a bit. So when the Sun and the Moon are lined up together... They're both pulling in the same direction, so you get a bigger tidal bulge on that side of the Earth, and that's why you get a spring tide. So I guess, yeah, the alignment of those objects does make a difference to the local gravity environment on Earth. Excellent. Now Sarah has uh, called in <clears throat> to ask about yeast. She says, where does yeast come from? You know the stuff you use in baking? Well, yeast is a fungus. It's a, single, it's a form of fungus. It's a single-celled a eukaryotic organism, that means it's got cells with have nuclei in them and they have DNA in their nucleus. And yeasts are ubiquitous in the environment. There are lots of different species of yeast, but very common ones we've heard of, of course, are candida. Um, candida is the yeast that tends to be pathogenic in humans. It can grow in your feet, cause candida infections. It can also grow in your mouth and other bits of your body. You get these nasty sore patches. Um, you also find yeasts called cryptococci. Cryptococcus neoformans, for example, can cause problems, especially in people who have a failure of their immune system. So patients with HIV, for example, or patients on drugs to suppress the immune system can get problems with these yeasts. And also, then you've got yeasts that grow in nature on fruit. And if you pick plums or grapes or apples or anything from your garden, pretty much, on the surfaces of the plant, on the fruit, you sometimes see a bloom, a sort of white haze on the surface of the fruit. And that's actually colonies of yeast. And in these circumstances, a common yeast is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And that is brewer's yeast. It's also the same uh, sort of family that you use to do your baking. Mm. It's the same general family of yeasts. And they're on the surface of the fruit because they're there uh, using things that are secreted by the plant. And also they're, they're growing there because water drips off the tree and so on, so they can make a life for themselves there. But when you put your fruit into the demijohn, add extra sugar, and then start to exclude the air, then the yeast is what actually comes to life, multiplies, eats the sugar, breaks down the fruit, and turns the results into alcohol. So yeasts are just an environmental substance, sometimes pathogenic, often not, and without them we couldn't have decent bread or decent booze. Uh, we've got um, Mike on the phone. Hello, Mike. Hello, people. How are you doing? Yeah, we're good. OK. <laughs> thanks, for asking my, thanks for my questions on white chocolate and the gravity of the moon and the sun lined up. Question. Yes, people Mike. train yeah. their brains, like these people who memorise 52 packs of cards and what have you, so they can then play back and re recite numbers of cards that they've seen. Does Dr. Chris do the same sort of way? How come he knows so much and how can he remember it <laughs> and play it back? Uh, forgotten the answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, How do you remember I, I so much a... stuff, basically? <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a geek, really. Uh, I read a lot, and that includes every week for The Naked Scientist. The way in which we get the news for The Naked Scientist is that me and my crew, the great guys I work with at Cambridge University, we go through pretty much every science journal that's being published, and we have a look at what's being written and what's going to be published and what's going to be in the news that but week. But how do you remember it? Well, I read through the papers... 
and I scan for what I think is interesting, and then I read the papers in a more detailed way, and then I write something about them. No, I just read them through, and then I pick the ones I think have got the biggest sort of message, what I think will make the biggest difference to people's understanding, and then I write something about it. So I will write four or five of those items up, one paragraph per item, probably about mm, 300, 400 words per item. And then I, because I use that for our program, I then put that on our website too. But I think in my case, the physical act of writing about it forces me to remember it. And what I'm getting at is if I ask you, Mike, can you, if I give you a bit of paper, tell me where all of the different numbers and letters on a computer keyboard are just by remembering where the letters and numbers are? Could you draw me a computer keyboard without without looking at anything? If you were to just get a blank keyboard in front of you and fill it in, could you do that? No. But if I then said, well, have a go, um, where would you, if you had to type your name, can you guess where the letters and numbers are? Yes, that, that comes quite quite quickly. So in other words, I, I bet what you're doing is you're tapping your fingers on an imaginary keyboard in front of you to work mm. out what the relationships are between the different letters, to work out vaguely where they are on a keyboard. Am I right? Uh, could be, yep. A bit, a bit well, like Sue on her ukulele. <laughs> well, what I'm getting at is that what you're basically doing to remember the computer keyboard layout is that you're using a motor program because your brain's very good at remembering motor relationships, how you make discrete movements in certain orders. And in order to remember the computer keyboard, you're using a motor program to work out the relationships between the different letters and therefore work out where they must be on the keyboard. You don't actually need to know precisely where all the letters are. You just remember the movements you need to make in order to remember them. And I think, with me, by physically writing about something, I remember the order of the facts and the way in which I wrote that and the motor program that I used to write those facts down. And it's that that then is the way in which I can get it back. Because if I start thinking about how I would recount that story, all the facts then link together in my mind. So I think it's a bit like when you look at these people who do this, um, they do those card tricks, which actually I'm hopeless at. I, if someone gives me a list of things to remember, I'll go wrong. Um, I think the way they do it is they tend to link the card sequence to some kind of memorable series of objects in their mind or some kind of memorable sequence and it's that memorable sequence they remember not the discrete cards they just have to remember the memorable sequence and its association with the cards which is a slightly different thing um, I think probably I'm doing the same sort of thing but with science facts So it's the actual visual impact that's important to you rather than just trying to memorise facts to look at them yeah. on paper and visual, you know, absorb the... Well, it's, the, the I, I think it's actually, it's a language, it's a lingu linguistic thing as well, because what I'll do is remember the combinations of words that go together to describe how a certain set of facts hang together. So, actually, it's, it's sort of mental rehearsal of the language rather than just a discrete piece of information. So rehearsing it in my head in terms of how I would explain something embeds that fact or sequence of facts, and so I can get at it from that way, if you see what I mean. It's quite hard to describe, really. He's just really, really clever, Mike. Thank you so much. OK. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast.
Dr. Chris, we're back on to the yeast subject again now. Um, as a caller called in and said, how would you make your own yeast? Is that possible? Oh, yes. And uh, if you look at how people used to make beers and wines historically, they never had all these packets or sachets of yeast that we now dip into when we want to either do some baking or to make wines and things. They had to rely on the yeast that were naturally there in the environment. And as I was saying, if you look at things like a plum, if you go and pick a nice plum off of your plum tree, especially this year, apples are the same because they're all coming very early. The fruit is early this year. If you look at the fruit, you'll see that there seems to be a sort of hazy surface coating on the fruit. And if you buff it up or polish it on your T-shirt, the fruit then becomes shiny. What you've removed when shining the fruit is a layer of yeast. There are lots of microorganisms that are sitting on the surface of the fruit. Bacteria are there too, but they're generally not harmful to you. And when you then put that fruit into your distillation, or sorry, your demijohn, so that you can make some wine, uh, those yeasts are then cultured. They grow, they copy themselves, they make more of themselves, amplify their numbers, and they then start to convert all the sugars into alcohol. So the yeast is there naturally in the environment. And when people used to do this historically, they relied on the natural yeast in those, on those fruits. And, and in France, when people are making, making their Beaujolais, uh, they will rely on the yeast that are naturally on the grape surface without necessarily having to add yeast to the culture to get it going. Mm. All right, well, Alan in Whittingham says, um, if the only drawback with nuclear reactors is the nuclear waste, why can't we have unlimited sources of cheap energy with nuclear reactors and ship the waste off to the sun? Well, the, the problem is that it's how you actually get the waste into space in the first place. Although the amount of waste that nuclear power actually makes in the grand scheme of things is very, very small in terms of the spent fuel rods and the casings that were around those fuel rods, for example. If you look at the impact of Chernobyl, which exploded in the mid-80s, that was a pressurised water reactor in the Ukraine, the impact of that has been literally thousands of people. There are thousands of deaths of people who had to go and clean that up. There were thousands of deaths in people who have had problems pursuant to having been exposed to that radiation, and not just in the Ukraine, but internationally. So therefore, there is a very big risk there that you could do considerable harm Therefore, getting that stuff into space in the first place is a major, major dangerous thing to try and do. And given the track record we have with how many launches actually occasionally end up blowing up on the launch pad or have to be exploded, terminated during the flight because they go off course, uh, it's viewed as an inadequately safe way of dealing with that kind of threat and therefore the safest way to deal with it at the moment until we know exactly how to deal with it in a very, very safe long-term way is to put it into a repository. In the UK at the moment we're storing our stuff in places like Sellafield and also at nuclear sites around the UK where there's a power station. These spent rods are often held at the site. They may have a big pond of water and you put your spent rods underwater and uh, they give off this beautiful blue glow called Cherenkov radiation which is fast moving electrons zipping through the water. But the point is that it's much safer doing that even though it's still unsafe having it hanging around than to send it up into space where it might actually blow up on the way up there and then the impact will be huge on the number of people it would affect. Oh, we don't know half, do we? Uh, but we do with Dr. Chris on the programme. Now, there's a couple of questions here from Nigel in Willen Park. Um, how do we know with such certainty that meteorites found in the Antarctic, etc., really come from Mars or any other place? Well, one way of doing this is that we know what Mars is made of. And we know that because you can look at Mars, you can look at the light that comes from Mars, and you can look at the spectrum of 
uh, light that's reflected from the planet. And this tells you a lot about the composition of the red planet. And because every chemical pretty much has its own light fingerprint, Bunsen of Bunsen burner fame, who was a German scientist in the mid-1800s, he actually discovered this science of spectroscopy. He realised that if you look at the light coming from the sun, there is not a continuous spectrum of light. There are gaps. There are bits missing. And he worked out that the bits missing are corresponding to the chemicals that are in the sun. So, for example, hydrogen absorbs radiation at a certain wavelength, and so when you look at the light from the sun, you see this gap corresponding to hydrogen. Helium does the same thing. So we can look at distant objects and know what's in them, such as the sun, without actually physically having to go there. So this means you can then look at other rocky bodies and you can work out what their composition must be or have a reasonable guess. We also know a lot about Mars from its gravity point of view. We know how big it is, for example. We know, therefore, what must be in Mars to a certain extent. That means that when we find a piece of material on Earth, we can match up the chemical fingerprint in that piece of material with our perceived or estimate of, of what the parent body and space is made of um, and make a reasonable guesstimate of what actually the origin of that piece of rock is. And there are not that many rocky planets, of course. There is Mercury... Venus, Earth and Mars. So, And there are things like the rubbish that the uh, early solar system formed from in the first place. And so we can pretty much discriminate quite well by doing careful analysis on the composition of those objects. The next question from Nigel, because he's got two, you see. Weight loss is a known hazard for the spacemen. Is there a method by which they can monitor their own weight in weightless space? Well, the, the thing that uh, astronauts really suffer from, in fact, is osteoporosis. Because they're not working against gravity, there's no impact on their bones. So every time you walk, there's a, an impact or a push goes through your bones. And this seems to be very important for keeping bones in tip-top condition. And so if you remove bones from that kind of weight, you put them into a weightless environment, or you put people into bed for a very long time, achieves the same thing, actually. The lack of weight-bearing exercise leads to the erosion of bone. What uh, astronauts can do is to stand on a pair of scales uh, with elastic bands holding them down. If you know how much the elastic bands are having to accelerate you, you can work out, uh, therefore, how much you're squashing the spring of the scales, and you can therefore work out, basically, how much someone's mass must be based on how much oomph it takes to accelerate them. But it's a good question. Well, our next one, Dennis, says, How is yeast mass produced for the baking trade? Well, the way they do that is you have a giant what's called fermenter. So you have a very big culture vessel, which is effectively a giant stew, and you put into there all the micronutrients that yeast needs to grow best. So that will be some proteins and amino acids, some salts, some sugars, and something to buffer it to make sure that the pH doesn't go wrong. And you put in oxygen because the yeast, if you want them to grow very fast, you need to supply oxygen because you don't want them to grow without oxygen because they, they uh, slow down when they do that and you culture the yeast like that under those conditions and you tap off the continuously draw off some of the culture and dry down the yeast and it forms these little spores and uh, that's what you put into the packet and then when you put the yeast into your dough the water in there rehydrates the little spores and they come back to life and start growing again. So it's a basically you just start off with a massive culture and you tap off little bits and, and package it up. 
got me thinking about Quatermass then, actually. Um, hello to, um, who sent me a little message there, saying he was enjoying, oh, Graham, said he's enjoying the diversity of the show this evening. Absolutely. We've got playtime later. The fancy toys are going to be playing here in the studio. Now, Keith um, says, Dr. Chris explained how the Romans were able to make concrete by observing volcanoes. Wondered how the Romans sharpened copper to shave with, seeing as we aren't able to sharpen it. Any I ideas? didn't know the Romans were um, sharpening copper to, to shave with. That's news to me, but uh, but I guess it must have been done. I mean, obviously the pyramids were built using, we think, copper tools because uh, iron hadn't been discovered at that time. And the problem with copper is it's much softer than iron and steel, so copper goes blunt much more quickly. So they had to keep continuously sharpening their chisels. But I think probably you can you can grind copper or hammer it quite thin, couldn't you? Because it could be squashed quite well. So I would think probably you would you would just hammer it out so you have a very flat surface, and then you could probably get some sort of edge on it. It was probably it must have been enough, I would think. But Rome, but why would Romans want to shave with copper anyway? Why wouldn't they use iron? They had iron, so they could make a sort of iron razor, couldn't they? Well, yes, and several pairs of nice earrings, I would think as well. Anyway, let's go to uh, Charlotte in Norwich now, who says a Herkima diamond, generic term for a double terminated quartz crystal. What is it? Well, I was having a look in my geology book, and uh, I'd not heard of a Herkima diamond, um, but basically it's named after the place in New York State where this was found, first of all, but they actually crop up all over the world, according to this. Uh, Basically what they are are double terminated quartz crystals. Quartz is a silicate, so that's like glass, silicon, with some oxygen stuck onto it. Um, And the reason they're double terminated, what that means is there are pointy bits at both ends. So rather than growing out of a rock, what they do is grow in little pockets in, say, clay or in a pocket in some magma where there's a bubble or a hole. And so these things deposit and the conditions are just right for the silicates to precipitate out of say water and other minerals that are present and as a result you then get these beautiful crystals which have the points at both ends they can be nice and clear or they can be cloudy apparently right okay well that um, that sorts that one out dr chris once again thank you so much for being on the show tonight well thanks for having me and a great wonderful combination of yeast related questions absolutely time to have some wine and some bread and cheese I shall bear that in mind. Thank you, Sue. (laughs) Take care. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 